It is 7 o'clock, and therefore time for us to begin our study tonight uh, as we conclude the book of Genesis. Chapters 47 through 50 is the material that we're going to cover this evening. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to at least kind of skim through that section. Uh, it is relatively familiar. There are some sections that get a little bit skipped over that we're going to maybe highlight a little bit more than we otherwise would just for the sake of making sure that we cover everything. We're very thankful to have everybody here. Thank you for being in the parking lot. Those of you that are at home tonight, I wish you could be here, but we understand you being at home and just thankful for you uh, tuning in to our website. Uh, we'll start in chapter 47 here in just a moment uh, after a word of prayer. I'll try to mention this at the end of, at the, end of the class, but next week, Lord willing, is a new quarter. And David Bunting is going to be teaching a study of Exodus, so we're going to pick up right where we left off at the end of Genesis. We'll make a couple of references to Exodus tonight. If you did not get a handout uh, packet from David uh, and you are either in the building or in the parking lot or if you're at home and you want one, uh, we'll make sure that you get one in some fashion or another but it's got some good information and it will help with our class for next week. All right, let's go ahead and take a moment and pray together and then we'll start in Genesis 47. Let's go ahead and pray together. Our gracious Holy Father, we praise you and we thank you for the goodness that you represent and the good that you are. In fact, you are great beyond compare and we thank you for the kindness that you've shown us this day. Father, we pray for those who are weak spiritually, for those who maybe are not here tonight because they've made the choice to do something else with their time. We pray that we might be an encouragement to them and help them realize the importance of Bible study and the importance of assembling with saints to encourage one another throughout the week like we do tonight. Father, we're thankful for the year that you've provided us and its opportunities and in spite of the challenges that we face, we look forward to new opportunities and your blessings in the future. Be with us tonight in this study. We do pray for our many members who have just recently been in the hospital with surgeries uh, or with the virus or with other ailments. We pray your blessings on them, that they may have a full measure of health restored to them. Thank you so much for the kindness that you continue to show us through the teachings of your word and through your providing for us in this life. Thank you mostly for your son, Jesus the Christ. In him we pray, amen. All right, very glad to have you tonight as we are looking at chapter 47 and 48, 49, and 50 in the book of Genesis. Uh, as we end the study of Genesis, as we're doing tonight, and as we look at the 47th chapter, I would argue and submit that it's helpful to look at this chapter um, with a uh, just kind of a nice reminder of Genesis 12, verse 3. Genesis 12, 15, and 17 kind of all go together. They just kind of roll off the tongue, 12, 15, 17, where you see the initial promise or series of promises made to Abraham and then repeated 15 and 17. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, we're going to see this kind of play out throughout the chapter, 
you find where, I'm going to open actually to the text. I want to read it exactly the way that it's written. It says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the fruition of that promise, it coming to pass, is now being seen more broadly and in bigger form here in chapter 47. So we're going to read uh, about seven verses in chapter 47 in the first half. And I want to start in verses 1 and 2. It says, Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. So this is... Uh, in, in many ways, a continuation of what we talked about at the tail end of our study last week in preparation before going to Pharaoh. When you go to a king, when you go before Pharaoh, uh, you do not go without preparation uh, in the way that you dress, in the way that you look, in the way that you conduct yourself, in your attitude. Uh, we have the famous instance of Nehemiah going before uh, the king and having a sad countenance and the danger associated with doing so. Esther going before the king without being summoned. So these are things that uh, are culturally uh, permissible or, or advisable to do. Um, verses 3 and 4, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. We have come to dwell, verse 4, in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flock, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So they had this rehearsed, prepared, that we will go to Goshen. Remember that back in chapter 46, the very last statement that was made, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And we said that it looks like the Egyptians kind of looked, not kind of, did look down on shepherding as a menial task or as something that was unimportant or less dignified or whatever the case may be. And so this is all prepared so that they can uh, go and settle and live in peace. And I like the fact that they show this complete honesty. Here the, the brothers have been less than honest on a number of occasions throughout their history. But they say, we are shepherds, knowing full well that they may get looked down upon. And we're going to stay in the land of Goshen out of your way, separate from you. That was for the benefit of the Egyptians, but also is for the benefit of, of, of the Israel people because they would not be subjected to Egyptian culture, gods, deities, things like that. In verses 5 and 6, how does Pharaoh react? Without me telling you, because you, you can read it yourself, but how does Pharaoh react? Favorable. Yeah, very favorable. He's very pleased with this arrangement. Uh, and in fact, I use the word kindness. Uh, and you compare that kindness to what David will talk about next week uh, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, didn't know or doesn't know the people of Joseph and his descendants. So memories are short. And one generation may know the Lord or know godly people, and then the next generation or the next or the next may not. And obviously there's some biblical teaching on that subject. Then what was kind of interesting here in verse 7, Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. 
and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So here's, rather than Pharaoh looking at Jacob and blessing him, it's Jacob um, looking at Pharaoh and blessing him. And I just thought that was kind of a, a neat picture. Also, the way that the New King James words it is his father, brought, or Joseph, brought in his father and set him before Pharaoh. There seems to be some language here, a shift in that Jacob has to be carried from one place to another. He is a very old man uh, at this point, and he will only be getting older, as most of us do through time. Um, we don't get younger, we get older, and that's what was happening here to Jacob. And then verses 13 through 14, there was no bread in all the land. The famine was very severe, so the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So he continues to be overseeing this great project. So this wasn't just a temporary project. Remember, this is going to be for many years. You had the, the seven years of plenty when they were setting some aside, and then you have the seven years of famine, and now things are really getting desperate for the world uh, in, uh, to where there's hardly any grain left, which leads to the desperation of verses 18 and 19. In fact, verse 18 says, When they came in the next year, they said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our hands. Verse 19, I mean, you, gotta, you feel for these people. Because verse 19 says, Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? That seems to be to be more than just figurative language, that it may very well be literal. We are going to die. We do not have enough food to provide for ourselves next week or next month or whatever the case may be. We're going to die. And so this picture of absolute desperation leads then uh, to someone suggesting. It wasn't Pharaoh's suggestion. It wasn't Joseph's suggestion, but it was the people's suggestion that they basically give their lives as collateral or payment, saying, we will be indentured to you. We are slaves to you. And Egyptians were obviously used to the concept of slavery. They were going to get very used to the idea of slavery once the Israelites multiplied, Exodus chapters 1 and 2. And now... One Egyptian is saying to a non-Egyptian, think about that for a second, to, to uh, Joseph, he's been Egyptianized, I understand that, but make us a slave. We are indentured, we are indebted. And that really is not a bad thing. Joseph is not trying to take advantage of them. He's, he's providing a way for them to have life and have sustenance because, again, I think there needs to be something said, verse 19, why should we die? Uh, without this grain. Um, note, if you would, the character of Joseph. Yet again, we've talked about the character of Joseph a lot in, in the last third of the book of Genesis, or the last fourth of the book of Genesis. Um, note, if you would, that he doesn't see this as something where he profits, but rather he puts the focus back on Pharaoh, uh, and we'll make an application about that, Joseph said to the people, indeed, verse 23, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. 
Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. It shall come to pass in the harvest that you'll give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for your households and the food for your little ones. And then their reaction, rather than, this is horrible, you're taking advantage of us, is what? You've saved us. You've made it so that we're going to have life. You have saved. The New King James says, you have saved our life. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So notice we will not be your servants. We will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph really puts the, the, the focus back where it belongs, um, giving credit to where credit is, is due or where credit should belong. There's something to be said about, uh, I couldn't help but think about, Matthew 5, verse 16, where it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. We don't want people to praise us. We don't want people to glorify us. We don't want people to talk about, well, how honest you are. We want, we want people to talk about our honesty, of course. But we want to be a reflection of that back to God saying, Well, as a Christian, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And all glory belongs to him. Uh, compare, if you would, Israel's people to the Egyptians... Verses 27 and 28. Uh, Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Uh, incidentally, it's kind of interesting, at least to me, that the way Moses has written this, the Holy Spirit has written this, is they're giving his age a full, what, chapter and a half, two chapters before he actually dies because we have a lot of material where Jacob is going to give the blessings to his sons uh, the very or predictions, you might even argue, as well. And then the very last thing uh, here in 47, uh, before, he gets ready, uh, it, it, before he gets ready to die, is what I put up here is that Jacob has faith in life and in death, similar to his grandfather and to his father, his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac. Now Jacob also seems to show a belief not only in life on earth, but life after death. He says, let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. We'll talk more about that burial place in, in just a moment or two. Anything else on chapter 47? As always, we, we go fairly briskly. Um, but any comments on, or questions on anything we've talked about so far? All right, let's go ahead and move to chapter 48. We'll spend a little bit less time on 48 than we do on 47. 48 is 22 verses, so it's a little bit shorter. Um, in many ways, there's a natural break between 47 and 48, such that 48, 49, and 50 kind of belong as a little item together such that the last three chapters set the stage for the future. Uh, Jacob is, at this point, very old, and he is very presumably weak. Uh, but I love the way the phrasing is used in the first two verses. It came to pass out of these things that Joseph was told, your father is sick. He took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look how verse 2 writes it, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you, and it says Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Some of you may have a version that says he collected his strength. Um, this may be a bad analogy, but when I thought about this, 
uh, verse, I thought about, do you, is it, is anybody remember when George H.W. Bush died, which was, what, a year ago, two years ago? It's been relatively recent. There's a, a well-played video of Senator Bob Dole standing up to salute him. I see a couple of you nodding. And he had to get, he had to have an assistant get him out of his wheelchair and stand him up and kind of steady him. And then he kind of weakly saluted. And then you could just see, like, all of his emotion. And then he sits back in the wheelchair exhausted. And I thought about that, that here is uh, Jacob so excited over seeing Joseph, who just happens to be his favorite son, by the way. Who And let's, let's cut Jacob a little bit of credit here. He hasn't seen him in years. So he's just been reunited with him. So this is a really big event for him. But he, he has to uh, gather up all of his strength. But when he finds out Joseph is coming, Joseph is coming. He's like, yeah, I'll sit up. I'm, I'm sitting up. I'm ready for him. I'm excited to see him. And I'm excited to see my grandsons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Or Manasseh and Ephraim is the order in which they're typically given here. But it becomes important in just a moment. Um, Jacob here then recounts the events at Bethel from chapter 35. What happened at Bethel? What famous thing happened? Uh, there's a couple things that happened at Bethel. But what's the biggest, most famous event that happened at Bethel? You have, you have the dream of the stepladder uh, or the, the staircase. Yeah. Anything else happened there? That was the... You have Rachel's death as well, right? So I'm going to make sure I, I look at my notes here. Because 32 is wrestling with God. Then 33, 35 is the return to Bethlehem, the death of Rachel. So you have those two key things there. These, uh, where God is almost communicating with him. We talked about with those angels ascending and descending. And then the death of Rachel, his favorite wife, the wife that he initially wanted. So these are big events. So he kind of goes back and he talks about those things. Um, and he says, um, he appeared to me and blessed me, and now I'm going to bless you as well. And going back to the lens through which we're looking at this entire study, Genesis 12, verse 3, is the idea, I will bless all those nations who come after you. Um, Verses 5 and 6. Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. The New King James says, your two sons are mine, is the ESV. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. What does that mean? What's, what's the significance of that? Because that's pretty big. Absolutely. So Joseph is scheduled to receive the inheritance, but he's giving it to Joseph's two sons, so he's doubling the inheritance for Joseph's name and making it so that Manasseh and Ephraim, who were a generation down in the pool of who gets what, now get elevated. And notice the two sons, he says, just as Reuben and Simeon, the two uh, oldest children. Just as my two oldest children, so are these the youngest children going to have the same benefits. And that's why, uh, and we, I sometimes talk about what our third graders know, 
But our third and fourth graders would be able to tell you there's no such thing as a tribe of Joseph, right, on the map. You can't find the tribe of Joseph, but you can find the tribe of Manasseh, and you can find Ephraim. And we'll talk a little bit more about Ephraim and its names, uh, the way that that name gets altered or used uh, at the end of our study, if we have some time, and and I can remember to get to that. Uh, But I want to save that for a few moments. Uh, So Jacob here prepares to bless the sons um, before he gets to the blessing of his biological sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, those guys. He first blesses Manasseh and Ephraim. So who does he take care of first? The favored son, the one that was number one, Joseph and, and his children. And then you have what I just called the dramatic hand-crossing and blessing. I want to read very quickly through those verses here. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and this is verse 13, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand brought them near him. Israel stretched out his right hand, laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, For Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life, redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Then verse 17, uh, a scene that you like, you saw this probably coming. Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him, is the New King James Version. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head, because the right went to the firstborn, right? But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people... He shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he said Ephraim before Manasseh. Uh, You hear a lot more about Ephraim, more about that at the very close of our study, than you do about Manasseh, at least in terms of the... Probably if you do a word count, I didn't do a word count, but if you do a word count, my guess is, is you will, because Ephraim, we'll go ahead and get to it now, Ephraim ends up being code word for what group of people going forward? Northern Israel. So when the kingdom splits, you have northern Israel, is called Ephraim, and southern Israel, which is, I don't know that it's ever really called that, is called Judah. Um, so whenever the prophets talk about Ephraim, they're talking about the northern kingdom. Whenever they talk about Judah, they're talking about the southern kingdom. And that we had a, a pretty good study of different prophets over the last year or so, year and a half, that has covered some of that. A lot could be said about that. There's, it's just it's it's one of those moments that you kind of wish you could see again on video. But any thoughts on 48 before we move on to 49? Okay, all right. Chapter 49 is, in my Bible, it's called Jacob's Last Words to His Sons. 
uh, and that's as creative as a title as it deserves, because that's exactly what it is. Um, I thought, not long and hard, but I did think about how to present this. So what I want to do is just kind of, not quickly, but rather quickly, just go through and look at uh, the highlights of the blessings. But you'll notice something in them that you probably already have picked up. Uh, and that is, who's going to get the most territory here? It's probably going to be two sons. And they both start with J. And so that's no surprise. All right, so in this chapter, after blessing the sons of Joseph, and I, and I put that in parentheses, but again, Joseph's sons were blessed first. Joseph, in, in terms of territory, um, Joseph is going to also be told great things about himself and his people, including Manasseh and Ephraim, going forward as well. But Jacob sets out to bless his own sons. And he does so as recorded in the order in which they were born, the order in which their births are recorded in the Bible. So let's just kind of look through and highlight a couple of those things. The first of those is, well, if I didn't put up there, who's the first son? Because by now we should be familiar enough that we... we have memorized the birth order of at least three or four of them. But Reuben comes first, right? So Reuben comes first. And he says in verses three and four, and the English Standard Version, I can't remember what it says in the New King James Version. Um, it, it, New King James is the same. Unstable as water. So he says, you're my firstborn. You're my might. You're the beginning of my strength. The excellence of dignity and the excellence of power. And so if you are Reuben, you're like, yeah, that sounds great to me. And then the next statement that's made is you are as unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. And going back to 37, 39, 40 uh, chapters, those chapters, we know why we can kind of put the pieces together and see why, um, why Reuben is treated this way, where even though he was the firstborn, Excellency is the word that is used, excellency of dignity. He is unstable as uh, water, and the reason is because you went up to your father's bed, defiled it, he went up to my couch, is what is written in verse 4. All right, um, Simeon and Levi get three verses, but they have to share the three verses. So whenever you tag team to do something bad in the Old Testament, the blessings, or the, in this case, the curses, get tagged to you as well. And we talked last week, well, we talked three weeks ago what Simeon and Levi did. We talked about it again last week. But here, Jacob rebukes their choices in chapter 34. Remember, they took vengeance into their own hand over the Shechemites, over the people of Shechem, and uh, had them circumcised, and then went and attacked them and did all kinds of ugly things. Um, one of the things that was included in Genesis 49 that was not included in uh, Genesis 34 is a little detail. And that is in their self-will, they hamstrung uh, an ox or some versions say lamed an ox or oxen. And he said, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, their wrath, for it is cruel. So that's one detail that I don't think that was included in chapter 34 as part of the ugliness of what they had done. 
Child number four in the list is, is Judah. And so I put up here, so Reuben gets two verses, Simeon and Levi get a verse and a half apiece, and then Judah gets five verses. There's only one other son that's going to get that much territory in the Bible in, in chapter 49, and that's, of course, going to be Joseph. Uh, privilege, power, uh, I should have put potentate. We would have had three Ps there. That would have been really nice. I regret having not done that. But, uh, and the Messiah lineage is going to come from him, right? Um, I love the terminology where it says in verse 10 that a scepter, or the, I'm sorry, the scepter, let's be specific here, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. So we know that the Messiah is going to come through Judah, not through anybody else. Um, we'll talk more about who else comes from Judah here in just a, a couple of minutes in our closing. Okay, next up is verse 13. He gets one verse. Zebulun. And the only thing that really is said about him, let me turn my page here to get over to there. The only thing that's really said about him is that he shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall adjoin Sidon. So not much is said about me. So if, if, you just, if you're on the tail end of hearing what Judah says and you're Zebulun, you think, I wonder what's going to happen to my people. Because in many ways, this is kind of prophetic language of what's going to happen to them, their ancestors going forward, uh, their, their, not their ancestors, but their successors, what will happen to them moving forward. And just a geographic reference is made. And then Issachar, um, I should have put in action instead of unaction, but a picture of future in action uh, where it says, he saw that rest was good, that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bury a burden and became a band of slaves. And there's some uh, other history um, that can help put some of this into perspective. What, guess what, I'm, guess what I'm thinking. We play this game, guess what I'm thinking from time to time. We're going to play it one final time tonight. What Old Testament book helps shed presumably the most light on Genesis 49? Well, besides Genesis. What Old Testament book probably helps flesh this out as, uh, as much as possible? I, well, you know what? I, what two books? Numbers and Joshua was the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where you see numbers. You see the tribes numbered and listed. And then Joshua is a story of settling, conquest, um, entering, all that kind of stuff into the land. So a lot of this stuff, you may have cross-references in your Bible to the book of Numbers, to the book of Joshua here as well. So yes, you were able to guess what I was thinking and go beyond that, which is even better. Uh, okay, then we have the final uh, uh, sons here. We have Dan, uh, symbolized as an animal. This time he is uh, called a serpent. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. If someone wants to use your own uh, in-depth Bible knowledge to tell me what that means. I do know this is the third time that an animal has been used in reference to the sons of Jacob. Uh, Gad is described as being warlike in future. And again, going into the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, you see where that plays out a little bit. 
the book of Asher, I'm sorry, the book of Asher, the book of Genesis 49, verse 20, uh, makes reference to Asher and his New King James royal dainties, the English Standard Version royal delicacies. Naphtali, uh, in verse 21, is a deer let loose. There's a couple of ways of reading through that. And then Joseph gets 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Again, he gets five verses. And it talks about archers targeting him, but him succeeding. Now, the Bible does not ever record physical archers coming after Joseph. So what does this probably mean? Pretty much everything was against him. Yeah. And he prospered you have his brothers against him. Uh, you have the Egyptians, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Mr. Pot, Potiphar himself at one point against him. Uh, you have a lot of people who are against him his entire life, like Nate said. I really appreciate what he said. And, but yet he prevailed because God prevailed in him. Uh, and then Benjamin, uh, even though Benjamin is a major character, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, at night he shall avoid the spoil. Probably a reference to a future of conflict and success. All right, I know we went through that quickly, but I didn't want to spend 20 minutes just on the sons because, um, well, we've covered enough of that for now. Plus, I want to get to chapter 50 and some very uh, closing comments. Um, Jacob dies and is buried. And where is he buried? Back in the land where he came from, back in the cave of Machpelah, right? And who was buried in Machpelah? Who was the first person? Abraham and Sarah was buried there. Abraham bought the cave because Sarah died, had to find a place for her. And then, of course, Abraham went there as well, right? Okay. Uh, remember that idea of death at the end of chapter 49 because death is the end of chapter 50 as well. Okay. Let's get to chapter 50 and we'll spend our last uh, nine minutes here and make some observations and lessons as well. So verse 1, it says that Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph mourns the death of their father. Just because Joseph is listed, seems to me, doesn't mean that he was the only one weeping, but that he's the real focal point of the story at this point. And there are days of mourning that are going to be assigned or days of weeping for um, for Jacob. How many days? 70. 70 days. So a full, what we would call 10 weeks. 70 days. I did not know this until I was reading again in preparation for this, but that when a Pharaoh died, customarily 72 days were granted as a mourning period. So here's Jacob, someone who's not been in Egypt that terribly long, who is not an Egyptian, who gets this royal funeral. If you look at the way the funeral is, I mean, he has all these people travel with him then travel back with, with Joseph uh, and, and his survivors. Uh, I mean, it was quite the obituary that they wrote for this guy. Um, and even though he was not Egyptian, and even though he hadn't been there that terribly long, uh, how many years did he live in in Egypt? 17. And we said that provides kind of a nice bookend. Uh, Joseph being 17 when this all really kind of catapulted and got 
uh, out of control and, the, and the, the being sold and all that stuff transpired. And now the last 17 years of Jacob's life are spent in Egypt. Um, Pharaoh grants permission to bury Jacob. Oh, I put that up there already. Pharaoh grants permission to bury Jacob in verse 6. And then the burial of Jacob is in verses 12 through 14. Let's just read it real quickly here. His sons did for him just as he had commanded him. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abram bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went with uh, and all who went up with him to bury his father. My guess is, is that was a substantial number. Again, it's almost like a state funeral being granted to this very important man. And the reason they're honoring Jacob is because they honored Joseph. And the reason they honored Joseph is whether they like it or not, they believe in God. Now, they didn't believe in God the way that we believe in God and the way that, that Israel believed in God or the people were supposed to. But God was at the center of this. And one of the, probably the, probably the biggest, one of the three biggest takeaways from the entire study of Genesis that we've done now for the last three months is what we talked about last week briefly. God is going to get his job done and, and accomplish his mission no matter what someone tries to do to mess it up. And so he, he will provide which is why we talk about the seed, the promise, uh, and, and the salvation that comes through him. Now, um, Jacob has died. What do the brothers do next? Or what is their reaction next? They're afraid Joseph will retaliate. They are afraid. And, and you know, if you are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, those guys... You would probably feel the same way. I, I would feel the same way. Uh-oh, dad is dead. Dad's been protecting us the whole time in the sense that Joseph wasn't going to harm us while he was alive. Now that he is dead, we are afraid that something bad is going to happen. Perhaps Joseph will hate us, verse 15, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did him. I, I like verse 15. Because they admit we did evil to him. So they're not trying to hide it. So the brothers who were very secretive and kind of cloaked in, in mystery are now very much honest. We tried to harm him. <laughs> we did a lot of evil to him. We were mean. We wanted him dead. At least most of us did. And um, the brothers are now fearful that their father is dead. How does Joseph react to this fear? When he finds out about it, say again. Yeah, he's hurt by it. He's like, and and, and it's almost to the point of how how could you feel that way about me? Look at verse uh, seventeen. Let's go to verse verse seventeen, the last part. Please forgive the trespass of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So he's hurt, he's bothered, maybe he's moved by compassion, uh, he's, he's moved with emotion. By the way, have you, I, I didn't count, but have you counted how many times Joseph weeps in this story? Um, and here's this great, powerful man. So real men cry from time to time as well, don't we? 
I'm not saying I'm a real man. Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't mean, well, I am, but not in that sense. I didn't mean, like, look at me, I'm a real man. But I just meant that I'm a human being who's a male. That came out the wrong way. Um, so Joseph here uh, is, again, showing himself to be a, a great character. We've talked about his integrity. We've talked about his honesty. We've seen that all the way back in chapter 39, where we were first introduced to his character. Uh, actually, 37, you see hints of it as well. But, and the belief in God's providence is illustrated yet again. He says, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph says, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God, verse 19. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as this day to save many people. Now, therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. And it really kind of comes full circle to what we talked about Sunday morning, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind, be tenderhearted. Joseph was kind to them. And then the last uh, couple of verses there, we see Joseph dying in Egypt. Interesting that I never really thought about this before. Joseph, 110, year, 110 years old, verse 26, they embalmed him. And they put him in a coffin in Egypt. The last sentence of the book of Genesis, they put him in a coffin in Egypt. The first sentence in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the, the book begins with just grandiose creation of God, and it ends with death. And in between is, the, is a very well-documented essay of 50 chapters as to why death occurred because of sin, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So it's kind of interesting how the book ends on such a somber note and how Exodus begins next week uh, with you hope that things are continuing to go well for God's people, but it doesn't take but a handful of verses before you realize that things are not going well at all. All right, uh, here are four lessons and observations uh, to take away from our lesson tonight. But from the entire study of 50 chapters, number one, honesty is always a good policy. We see that uh, got the brothers in trouble when they lied, and we see that it freed them in more than one way uh, when they were willing to tell the truth. Secondly, uh, our ways of integrity can go an awful long way. By being honest, by doing what is right, by even when no one is watching, we set a good example. Um, the Notable Notes article this coming Sunday is an article written by um, a preacher, and he talks about how a strong marriage can be a testimony of your integrity to others that they'll pick up on and they'll notice. It's a really good article, so take a, take a look at it. Thirdly, Trusting the Lord to do his will in spite of human happenings is a worthwhile endeavor. So I'm going to trust God. The world around me may be spinning out of control. Other people may be trying to thwart God's will, but God's will will prevail always. And then fourthly and finally, the life on earth is about preparing for life that comes hereafter. Again, that goes back to what I talked about Sunday, that life on earth is about preparing for life um, eternal. We've got... 60 seconds, 90 seconds left or so. Final thoughts or comments on the study of Genesis in general? Um, 
or on what we've talked about tonight. Anybody have anything you want to add to it? Oh, uh, I had one other thing. So, who are the two most famous spies? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua came from Ephraim. Caleb came from Judah. One from north, one from south. Kind of a complete, and you, you see that numbers 13 verses 3 through roughly 8 or whatever. Just kind of a neat play on the continuation of Ephraim and Judah. Just thought that was kind of interesting. No extra charge for that tonight. All right, we'll go ahead and stop there. Thank you all very much. If you did not get a uh, packet, um, see David Bunting. So those of you in the parking lot, if you got here a little bit late, next week we're studying the book of Exodus, and David Bunting is teaching. He has a packet. That will be very helpful, so just let him know, and he'll get that to you. Thank you all.